it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Stay sick, turn blue, lock it in and rip the knob off. You've tuned to the One Sensational Shot Network. I'm Fletcher Walton, welcome back into the Electronic Labyrinth. 1997, following a death march from production to exhibition, with his grossly ill-tutored producers at erstwhile distributors of Hack TV, Reicher Entertainment, debutant director Paul Thomas Anderson uses the cash advance from his next film and the charity of his own cast to secure final cut on Sydney, soon retitled Hard Eight, and permitted a desultory late February US release to muted reviews. But by that time, already in the can for New Line, is PT sophomore effort Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is a marvellously assured and idiosyncratic carnival of likeable lost souls, traversing the San Fernando fuck picture business during the 70s-80s transition from the highs of Main Street respectability to the lows of videotape cheapies. In response to the misery of Sydney's protracted post-production and release, a wounded, defensive, defiant Anderson had penned a deeply personal screenplay for no one but himself and his friends, and on meeting with New Line's Mike DeLuca asserted final cut on what he angrily warned was a three-hour NC-17 epic. An enthusiastic DeLuca soothed the fledgling's ruffled feathers, reassured PT that his Reicher experience was most uncommon, asked only that the finished film stay R-rated, and then basically left Anderson to it. Boogie Nights opened in the US in October 1997 and immediately entered both the cultural lexicon and the awards conversation. At the same time, Hard Eight was opening in the UK, now buoyed by the advance buzz on Boogie Nights from across the Atlantic. Three months later, on January 16, 1998, Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson's magnificent second feature, was released in UK cinemas. And it's on the occasion of its 20th year here that we celebrate it today. Boogie Nights is my favourite Hollywood film of the 1990s. The rhythm of its editing is enveloping in its musicality. Its affection and honesty is acute, and somehow its tonal shifts are as smooth as ten coats of competition orange hand rub lacquer. Its casting is a collection and coronation of wonderful esoteric supporting actors that continue to set the bar. The opening refrain positions the picture as a tragicomic big top. It's a tawdry carousel from which many of these characters will never really get down. They're mostly blithe, wounded misfits with modest dreams, floundering for identity and for dignity. Paul Thomas Anderson loves every single one of them, and he writes them accordingly, and their actors invest in them so fully and with such empathy and humanity that after two and a half hours, these fuck-ups are our fuck-ups, and we love them too. But before I burst into tears, it's also important to recognise that Boogie Nights is funny. Joining me to toast two decades of this bright, shining star is comedian and Paul Thomas Anderson fan Aidan McCaffrey, the Reed Rothschild to my, if we're honest, Todd Parker. So let's see if he can rein me in before I start shouting about floor safes.
Boogie Nights. When the first time I saw Boogie Nights will have been on Sky Premiere, and my first experience with it was fairly shallow. I think I first engaged on a superficial level, an aesthetic level, driven by the soundtrack, driven by the performances, the comedy in the performances particularly, but also the mania in the performances, the manic energy of um, of Alfred Molina as Ray Jackson and Tom Jane as Todd Parker. And my my appreciation of it stayed quite juvenile for quite a while. As a young film fan, but as a fan of Scorsese, and as a fan of uh, kind of excitable, energetic filming styles. Yes. Like that Goodfellas guns delivery scene with De Niro saying, turning your mind to mush, yeah. that whole thing, and looking up at the helicopters. For me, that's how I interacted with Boogie Nights. The characters were less important to me. It was all about, eventually, I drilled it down to all about the Ray Jackson scene. And I, I watched that probably 10 times, independent of watching the film on the whole. You know, I was... 14 and then 15 years old and that's an awkward film to be watching at any time of day when parents come in and say what is this because you know this was a zeitgeist picture yeah. he's got a, my dad still my dad's only seen the film once and he still says Dirk Diggler so often far, it, yeah th that name's acclaim well, and renown is far well, greater the than the, the film the zeitgeist thing's interesting because I don't know if you remember in the late 90s there was a reappraisal of disco whereby that sort of started to infuse chart music a bit more yeah it was that same thing of like how you're always 20 you're always re re-falling in love with what was 20 years ago do you know yeah what I mean? so oh yeah in the 70s you have the happy days american graffiti thing like oh wasn't the 50s great you yeah know, you know all 80s films have some rock and roll song from the 60s in the soundtrack you know like great balls of fire or something um yeah and in the 90s it was a proper reappraisal of the 70s it's when people were like oh actually abba weren't shit they were quite good yeah and it's interesting that PTA is not a director who you would say has ever directed Zeitgeist stuff, even despite him do doing big notable films that have made a mark. Except Boogie Nights did fit into that quite yeah. well. Like, it's called Boogie Nights, even though what's that really got to do with it, apart from the fact that it's just a cool song from the 70s? Yeah. And I kind of think it, it was interesting that that film tapped into the sort of disco thing, the flares thing, all that aesthetic, even though it's actually quite a dark film in many ways it's a nice film it's about family and it, it does leave me with a warm feeling inside but there's a 30 minute section at the end of that film that i'd say is pretty grim <laughs> yeah it's a joyful film about incredibly sad people but in terms of the zeitgeist as you've said i think the tape that i recorded it on was with big night which is aside from this but last days of disco as well yes and they're around the same time and you're right there was a reappraisal i mean there's tracks featured in 54 was that around the same time yeah 54 came yeah. out yeah uh, weinstein was part of hacking that to pieces <laughs> mike myers isn't that but there are tracks in boogie nights that were sampled in the 90s machine gun by the commodores is the basis of hey ladies by beastie boys that's at the end of the 80s but it soundtracked the 90s um, Last Days of Disco has one, uh, Andrea True Connections, More, 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 is the basis of Still My Sunshine by Len, ah, which we all know. Yes. And you're right, uh, Yeah, it's always, it is always the case. It's um, Firstly, it's young creative people get to about 22 and realise that the shit their parents enjoyed is actually all right. Yeah. That's exactly what the Strokes have done. and they, I, I, It's as though they open a binder of family photos in 1978 to 1982 and realise, yeah, that leather jacket's dope. And I like yeah. that Max L t-shirt. So, yeah. Dad, where is it? There's all of that. <laughs> And yeah, I think that's that's not what PT was doing. But yes, that at the end of the century, the 70s were once again in vogue with the ABBA thing. Started about 92, 93 with ABBA Gold. And then Priscilla and yeah. Matey Muriel's Wedding. Yeah, disco stuff in the charts. Like, um, what's the one where there's like a, there's like a voice on it where it goes, 
get involved with the people on the dance floor. Oh, yeah. 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 What was that one? Dance all the time. I'm going to stay in the lab. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's an interesting fact. My brother, he's a painter and decorator, but for a period, he would earn 40, 50 quid on a Friday night by being a disco dancer on stage at a nightclub. So they'd have a disco night and him and five other people would just dress up in stupid massive flares and big collars. Um, and they'd go on stage and they'd all have stupid names like Bend Over and like it was all slightly <laughs> camp and ridiculous. And they'd come out of a TARDIS yeah. on stage to, I don't know, Cool and the Gang yeah. or Funky Town or something. And they'd just dance in a sort of ludicrous Bee Gees Saturday Night Fever way. And they'd get paid for it. And that was like a club experience. This, in the is, late this is your brother? This is my elder brother, yes. Your, so your brother is Todd Parker. That's exactly what he does <laughs> in the picture at Party Boys. He's a dancer. That's he insane. Yeah. But um, yeah, the... Uh, the, the Mace track, uh, Mace and Diddy, or as he was, Puff Daddy back then, sampling um, the, the track for More Money, More Problems, and Enjoy Yourself by A+, samples Fifth of Beethoven from Saturday Night yeah. Fever. That was all there. What you mean is it? Yeah. What the beat? All of that. Yeah, it was all there. You're right. So it's interesting, yeah. It's it's kind of a Zeitgeist film. You're right. Your dad's seen it once and he still refers to Dirk Diggler. Yeah. But at the same time, it was quite dark. And also, like, just... I think I came the same way as you, which... I was trying to remember if I'd seen Scorsese stuff first and then watched Boogie Nights. I definitely remember watching Boogie Nights and recognising cuts. Little fades. You know, like, there's a shot where someone steps out of a car and there's like two very quick fades. So it's like opening the door, quick fade, they're almost out of it, quick fade, they're closing. I think it's when... When the Colonel James yes, arrives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. so Scorsese. Yeah. Um, obviously the whole thing is infused with a sort of like Altman-esque, like sprawling or following loads of characters around and seeing yeah. what they're up to kind of thing. So, but I can't remember if I, I watched Scorsese, then watched that and was like, yes, I get this. Or if I watched Spooginettes, then watched Scorsese and came back into it and then got the connections because it was literally... All that stuff was so formative on my early teens. It's hard to remember what I saw first. But I yeah. do remember appreciating, like, there's a cinematic lineage here that's really interesting. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like PTA, it's, it's not just that he's some, like, Scorsese, Altman, uh, rip-off hack. He, he definitely had something to say about that period. And yeah, that's how, that's how I interacted with it. Um, there was a few things. So one of them was that this bloke's meant to be like Altman, especially once Magnolia had come out again, and so that gives you an opportunity to go back and watch Hard Eight or Sydney and Boogie Nights. And the, the, the media narrative was, this bloke's like Altman. In fact, for Altman's last picture, PT was part of the insurance deal. On Prairie yeah. Home Companion, PT signed on as, <laughs> as the reserve director in case Altman died during production. Wow. And that's got John Riley in as well. I don't think that was part of that. it. Oh, right. Um, and so, yeah, that was the narrative. This bloke's like Scorsese, this bloke's like Altman. He might be greater than the sum of those parts, he may not be. But the other thing was, um, I saw in Empire Magazine the reduced magazine size one sheet for Boogie Nights. And for me, that was, it was a playbill of these are the people that are going to be important for the next five years Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Don Cheadle. Don, yeah, Don Cheadle. Melora Walters, it didn't happen for, but Wahlberg as well, yeah. And they were all names, going down that cast list, they were all names that I had barely interacted with, but I was about to. I knew William H. Macy from Fargo, but, yes. it, you know, for a 14 year old, that's a relatively obscure film, and it came yeah. out when I was 12 or 13. And Julianne Moore, I was yet to see in. Big Lebowski, but I knew, I only knew her from The Fugitive and <laughs> Lost World. It's it's mad yeah. the lineage of all of these things. I knew that she'd been cast in Lost World because of The Fugitive and Spielberg liked that one scene she has. Really? Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. That, yeah, um, I did not know that. And I knew that 
Empire had said that shortcuts is a top opportunity to see her ginger pubes. <laughs> and so I knew she'd work with Altman and uh, had an understanding of safe, but didn't really know who Todd Haynes was. John Riley was completely new to me. I think I'd seen the River Wild films. Interesting that he tapped into all this talent. I mean, yeah. do, do you reckon it's that PTA, as an avid film consumer, had spot, seen all these things and gone, I want that guy from River Wild, I want yeah. that girl from Safe? Or, or do you reckon it was just, I don't know, they all... They all just recognised this great script and like, I want to be... I don't know, what was it? It was definitely the former, in as much as P.T. wrote for actors. I've listened to the commentaries and I feel such kinship with him and I think you would as well. He, he feels like us in the way that, yes, he references I Am Cuba and Bob LaFlambeau, but at heart, he's all about Jonathan Demme and Midnight Run, Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope, late 60s counterculture, late 50s jazz culture, Hepcats, a parochial esoteric television commercial from 1986, Saturday Night Live, Adam Sandler Pictures, obscure comedians from Mr. Show. He understands those as well. And he says in a commentary that some people, ironically, he says something like some people want to work with John Travolta or Tom Cruise, which he did later. But his guy was John C. Riley. He saw John C. Riley in Casualties of War and set out to meet him and be friends with him. And he wrote... uh, he wrote Little Bill for William H. Macy, obviously wrote those Philip Baker Hall roles for him. Because he'd seen, again, he'd seen Midnight Run, he'd seen Secret Honour by Altman. And it's quite, I mean, the, the Riley thing, there's prescient. I don't know if he was meant, that role was meant to be as funny as it is. But there's a weird <laughs> prescience about Boogie Nights, because Riley is now, he's sort of part of that Will Ferrell gang, and he gets yeah. big comic roles. And he's in a couple of arguable classics like Step Brothers, uh, Walk Hard. He's a great comic actor. I was baffled for years why Boogie Nights happened and it took Hollywood 10 years to go, oh yeah, he is really funny. Because yeah. he, he is fucking hilarious in Boogie Nights from the moment you meet him. Hey, Reed! Rito! I want you to meet the new boy on the street. Eddie Adams. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Eddie. Reed Rothschild. I want you to stick around for a while, okay? Sure. Make yourself special. So you live on the street? No, no. Oh, I thought Jack just said you did. No. You want a drink? Sure. Margarita? Great. Wow. Can I ask you something? Uh Uh-huh. Do you work out? Yeah. Yeah, you look like it. What do you squat? Two. Super. Super. What do you squat? 350. Wow. No BS. That's a lot. Where do you work out? Torrance, where I live. Cool. Hey, you ever go to Vince's out here? Oh, no. I would have seen you. I'm there every day. I've always wanted to work out at Vince's. Cool, here. Taste that. Rock and roll. Right? Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? What do you bench? Well, you tell first. I asked you first. Same time. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. 
right through to the bit in the recording studio where he's dancing to that awful cover of You Got the Touch, um, Pop Quiz Hot Shot. What film is You Got the Touch from? It's Transformers. Yeah, Transformers <laughs> the movie. Which, um, which uh, dices with the chronology because yeah, that, by then they're about 82 within the world of Boogie Nights. Yeah. But again, PT doesn't care. It's the right song for, the for those people. Yeah, exactly. you know, it's, it's cocaine writ large. But right, yeah, he's, he's hilarious. And yeah, it took 10 years for him other people to sort of go oh yeah he's very funny and it's it screwed with me because subsequent I mean he'd made two pictures with Scorsese before he started down the comedy route with Will Ferrell Gangs of New York and The Aviator but it's screwed with me now because every dramatic role I see him in I begin to, and this isn't to his this isn't uh, a comment on his abilities and it isn't really detrimental to the performance but I expect him to make me laugh and it becomes more difficult to see somebody that I've so fallen in love with as a comic actor. A really good example is um, him and Tom Jane both appear in The Thin Red Line. Oh. And John Riley's lines in that kind of make me laugh because I expect... <laughs> now I've seen... The, the other thing it's I've seen It's almost like a is, comedy muscle memory, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. He can't help but be funny. It's like P.T. says, he is fucking hilarious or whatever he does. And uh, Magnolia as well. Um, there's an immense pathos to his character in that. But him and P.T. drove around for hours with... John Riley in the police car improvising and PT shooting and sniggering away because mm. everything John says is funny. I mean, <laughs> on the ensemble, I mean, one of the things, uh, to put it into an Oscar context, which, you know, isn't entirely relevant, but, you know, the film did get some, uh, it got yeah. three Oscar nominations. Um, so it got nominated for more, uh, oh, I've got Burt Reynolds yeah. and the screenplay. Now, Burt Reynolds is, is interesting because Oscars, they do like a narrative of someone who went away and they have a big comeback. Yeah. So, like him... Uh, Mickey Rourke in uh, The Wrestler. That, they, they love that shit. Stallone for Creed, I, I thought would beat Rylance. Yeah. I even bet on it in our little sweepstake. If you'd have said to me 10 years ago, Stallone's going to play Rocky Balboa again and get an Oscar nomination, I would have been like, no, he's not. Yeah, That's off the back of that sixth he one. Deserved, he, earned, he earned it as well. Good. But um, going back to the reason I mentioned the Oscars is like, Reynolds is good in that film. He's great. But I, the, re- the important parts that really sing, I think, and the ones that I really have an emotional connection with, are like Cheadle, Really, I really feel sorry for that character. I mean, yeah. in the end, it's okay. But the scene in the bank where he's going, you're not being fair. You're not being fair. It really kills me every time I watch it. And this is the thing. For a film that's got so much flair and it's got all this, like, I guess, pornographic imagery in and all these big stylistic set pieces, it is those moments of just a character who has a, a dream, a very small dream. He wants to start a, rac- yeah. a, a hi-fi store. And it's been denied. That stuff stays with you. You know, um, it was the first time I was floored by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like that scene where he tries to kiss Mark Wahlberg. And they're just in the car after going, you're a fucking idiot. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. So I kind of always think with the Oscars, like it's, if it was the personal Aiden Oscars, I would probably go for Best Supporting Actor, uh, Hoffman, Cheadle, John C. Riley. Do yeah. a Godfather, nominate three of them, why not? Cheadle's amazing in that the... Um... This is what I mean about that at different times in one's life you appreciate films in different ways. And once you've seen a film, Luke and I always say this, you see it it's once... Like, it's like the Pulp Fiction Jackie Brown thing. So what you were saying before about like when you're a teenager and you're a cinephile, you're very obsessed with styles, with style, yeah. Scorsese, yeah. the style of Kubrick. And when you're a teenager, like uh, it's like Pulp Fiction's your favourite Tarantino film because it's got such a lovely like widescreen, you know, static um, sort of style to it. Yeah. And the cutting's amazing. But as you get older, you kind of you kind of rolled on for Jackie Brown, aren't you? Because oh, yeah, the characters yeah. are so rich in that film, and it's much easier to connect with them. There's a great delivery by Magnolia star Michael Bowen there when he's talking to Pam Grier and says, "If I were a 44 year old black woman, you know, <laughs> when he's talking about essentially leaning on her to get her to knock so she doesn't lose her job and not having second chances, I think yeah, that's what's happened with Boogie Nights. 
Um, for a long time, I found it. It I, I identified the style of it, the joy, the tension, the excitement of the Ray Jackson scene. But now, so it's the Ray Jackson scene, the Alfred Molina bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so good. But now I find myself. Oh, so what is it? Does it say? Long way down, one last thing. Yeah. That so when we watched it, so that really hit me because I sort of I hadn't forgotten about that bit. But it's kind of the testament when you're watching a great film and your favourite scene hasn't happened yet, and you forget that it's about to happen yeah. because they all hit rock bottom. And you and I, I remember thinking, all oh, right, the next scene is Wahlberg going up to Burt Reynolds and going, uh, mm. "Can you help me?" And I forgot there's a whole sequence, and it's like it's almost quite self-conscious that even he knows, like, I could probably remove this from the film, yeah. and it still would work. The emotional arcs will still work. But it, but it's excellent. So why we, it's, like, it's the Johnny B. Good sequence from Back to the Future. Yeah. It's like you <laughs> yeah, could take yeah. it out, and yeah. it would still work plot-wise. But you'd be removing a nice, a great bit of movie magic from the I, whole thing. It's true. Have lived there for a year. I bought the New Line version, DVD version of Boogie Nights. The special edition is essentially the Criterion Collections Laserdisc version. Even the commentary is the same. There's a couple of bits where he mentions DVD, but he recalled PT recorded the commentary for the Laserdisc. And I got back and I showed that firecracker sequence to my mother just because I wanted I wanted to share that with her and see if she emoted the same way and none of the rest of the film and I said you know you may have heard of this film it's porno stuff this bit isn't porno <laughs> I showed her that six eight minute sequence and she was so utterly invested she she said something oh no they're gonna get them they're gonna get the boys um it's Casmo it, yeah <laughs> it's, it's and, Anderson's an artist and it's absolutely valid for him to say but for him to drop into his own film, his own work, something that, as we say, it, it's not superfluous, but it's it could be considered inessential. I don't think there's a better Hollywood scene in the 90s than that scene. And there's a shot we've talked about before, again, off-pod. feels about a minute in a good way, where it's just a static shot of his face. And I, again, I think it's very self-aware, because you could argue it's almost lost track of the fact that it's about, about Dirk Ligler, and it's his art. But yeah. they've introduced lots of new characters, including Thomas Jane character, including Alfred Means character, and it's sort of become almost like a side adventure. And it's just, it's just really, it just shows he hasn't forgotten that it's about him. That you just, for some reason, have. Did you say it was 17 seconds? I think it's 40 something. Oh, it's 40. Oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah, sorry, I misremembered that. Um, just 40 second shot of him. No one's talking, or they are, but it's very quiet and makes you can't hear what they're talking about. And it's just his face. It almost even looks like they weren't acting. You know what I mean? It almost yeah. looks like. They were setting up a shot, and he's just gone hang there. Yeah. And Warburg's just kind of being very relaxed, and he smiles a little bit, even though it's a tense sequence. It's a great moment of humanity in, in, in what is quite a tense and very funny uh, sequence. That's a really good point. In that, in that sequence, he's retaking control of his own life, and it took me a long time to understand what's happening in that 40-second shot. Now remember, Eddie is a passive character. Dirk Diggler is a character Eddie's playing. Dirk Diggler is the man Eddie wants to be, but Eddie's a passive character, and it's at that moment Eddie realises this is literally it. If I don't do something now, I'm about to die. 
and this is the this is the one opportunity I have to get the fuck out right now. And yeah, he takes the film back, and the film ends with him. You're right. It spins away, and we get another maybe eight significant stories with yeah. characters. But that's the point where he yeah he he <laughs> he takes back his own film. As I've grown older with it, and now I watch it, I cry during the God Only... Is it God Only Knows or yeah, Lord Only Knows? Yeah, that's the last... Is it the last one in the film? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is it Lord Only Knows or God, God Only Knows? God Only Knows. God, yeah. I cry during the God Only Knows Best film ever. Best song ever written, Paul McCartney. It, it works beautifully. And I'm really pleased because sometimes music rights are a tricky thing. In fact, Jeff Lynne originally refused the licensing of Living Thing. Then watched the film and said, no, I understand it completely. This is fantastic, really funny, really dramatic. I, under I, I can understand and chime with what you're doing. You can use Living Thing, because it's, that's use. Its use is superb as well. But the, yeah, the God Only Knows sequence, It's as you get older and you realize just how damaged and sad all of these characters are, and their desires are quite modest. Eddie only wants to do the one thing that he's good at. And as we've said, um, the hi-fi store. He just wants to yeah, the hi-fi store. And Jack, Jack Horner wants to make that one film, that yeah. one picture, which he does. He succeeds doing with the, with the Brock Landers pictures. I mean, this industry is going to be turned upside down soon enough. Why help it? Why not be prepared? Colonel's got the money. You've got the talent, Jack. I got the connection to the equipment and the mail order distribution. Not to mention those kids out there who are hot fuck action to the max, Jack. This is the future. Videotape tells the truth. Wait a minute. You come into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. That the future is tape, videotape, and not film. It is amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie on videotape. And I'll tell you something else. I will never, ever loan out any of the Wait, 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 wait. I'm not a complicated man. I like cinema. In particular, I like to see people fucking on film. But I don't want to win an Oscar, and I don't want to reinvent a wheel. I like simple pleasures, like butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy, call me a pervert. But there's one little thing that I want to do in this life, and that is I want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. Jack, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you stay one step ahead of the game. We're going in circles now, but we're in familiar territory. The territory we're in is the future, not to mention the cost. You know, if it looks like shit, and it sounds like shit, then it must be shit. You're holding on too tight, Jack. It doesn't have to look good. Film is just too damn expensive, and the theater's already converting to video projectors. I'm right there. Because he has, I mean, it's an interesting idea. He has artistic integrity. Whether you think there is artistic worth it, there is yeah. a debate. But he does it because the, the, what's, the what's the point of the film when he loses his shit and beats someone up? It's when the guy turns to him and says, and your film suck now, and yeah. he fucking loses it. That's the most distressing part of the film, I think. When yeah, because they actually, I mean, you kind of like all the characters in the film, but at that point, it's hard to like them. I mean, well, they, they just beat the shit out of a guy on the street who just because he insulted their integrity a bit, and yeah. it's it's ugly. But I think the film knows the film knows that's a low ebb for them all, and but they all make and they all well, uh, maybe it's, it's hard to say with Jack, 
Roller Girl, she changes after that, and you yeah. see, see her back in school, and that right at the end of the film. Uh, obviously, we've, you've discussed um, Dirk, take, or Eddie takes control of his life again after that. Here's a, here's a question. Is the, does the film have any flaws? I, I don't think it does, but when I rewatched it, the only thing I thought that I'd never thought before is like, I was sort of left wondering, why is, why is his mum so angry? Like, she's really angry. Yeah, I, and it, I'm not <laughs> saying the film has to develop her. It's a film that I would say is quite good on women because it, you know, there, there is a, a, I'd say there's a rounded emotionality to, you know, Julianne Moore's sort of maternal character, even though, she, and she, you know, she's got that whole past with her. And that's also, that's her modest hope, is just to be a mother again. Yeah, you know, exactly. something that she she's lost and, and then lost she regains that. I think that, that sequence... I suppose I will say the whole mother-family thing being is interesting because I do think the theme of the film is largely about family. And yeah. you get that right at the end. So it's interesting that you see his family falling apart and he gets pulled into another. But I just... It's the only time I've watched it, I was just thinking, she's really angry. She has a right go at him for being thick, which is horrible. Yeah. She's quite weirdly uh, slut-shaming because she's yeah. like that little harsh shell that you've been sleeping with. Yeah. And I just was really struck by it. Like, God, she's really fucked up. <laughs> Why is that? Well... P.T. himself has said he wishes he could have done more with that. There wasn't room in the uh, film. And he feels that her particular story is ill-served by the finished film. He wouldn't add any more to it, but he could. He would like to see himself another 10 or 20 minutes with those characters. When I watch that sequence, the honesty of it is astonishing to me and bracing. I recognise that mother character as realistic rather than cliche. The film does enough to convey that character. I think the information imparted is all that's required to understand that character. And I know why she's acting the way she is toward Dirk. It stems from a dissatisfaction in her own life. And then one of the one of the most heartbreaking shots in the film, I think, is the single shot that moves around the bed to show the father, uh, static, inert, upstairs, listening to the yes. mother, ragging on Eddie. Um, and it's the insertion of that shot, which I think a lesser filmmaker wouldn't even consider, but, but you get a lot from it. Yeah, that, that the context it's of that... It's a good example of, like, a little bit goes a long way. Yeah, I think it shows exactly the dynamic of that family. When the father comes downstairs for breakfast and goes to kiss Joanna Gleason, and she says, if you're going to kiss me, you might want to shave. Yeah. You know. But she's in a really bitter way. Yeah, that, that... And it shows, you know, people develop that anger over years and decades of dissatisfaction and personal... Um, Failure for me. It's getting tied into things we've been talking about. People have little things they want from life, whether it's a hi-fi store or to make one great film or whatever. Maybe she had a thing that was denied from her. Yeah. Again, it's, I say it's debatable whether it's a flaw. Like you never find out what that is. It was just, it was just striking to see it. I mean, it, as it's presented, she's alcoholic as well. But as it's about control, dissatisfaction, and a kind of rage, which uh, doesn't require. It requires a a fulcrum to shout at. But th those individuals, the father and Eddie, what they do isn't making her angry. She's angry anyway, yeah. and she takes it out on them in a way that she's developed over years and years. they're quite passive. Mm. Like he's just eating his breakfast, you know, or he's, he's largely doing the same. Um, yeah. And, yeah, he's, a, he's not an intelligent fellow. Her rage is not commensurate with his transgressions, and that's because he is incidental to her anger. What it does nicely as well is... It does effectively then set up the unusual and almost Oedipal relationship he has with Amber because she wants a son yes, and he wants a mother. And there's a few... I mean, PT can talk all day about Julianne Moore, but there's a couple of moments I wanted to highlight. Firstly, when Jack has brought 
Eddie into the family, essentially, and they're sat at the diner, the four of them. Daughter and son on one side, Roller Girl and Eddie, and on the other side, father and mother, uh, Jack and Amber. And Jack moves forward to explain what he wants to do, the fuck picture he wants to make. And that would obscure Julianne, but she immediately leans backwards and puts her arm on the booth behind Burt Reynolds. And so uh, immediately they're of equal power in that scene, yeah. equal composure. But she's, and then the, the camera moves on that. PT does really well with it because there's so much talk now about the male gaze, but that shows the female gaze, I think. Um, there's a shot of... Uh, the whole time Jack's talking, but the camera moves to uh, cut him completely out and it's just on Amber. And then it reverse shots to just on Dirk. And you imagine, yeah, she's looking at Dirk. And the next time we visit that theme is the Lonely Boy sequence, the Andrew Gold Lonely Boy sequence. Uh, Amber's son has called asking for his mother. Yes. Meanwhile, Amber is bumping rails and looking at Eddie, who's about to become Dirk Diggler, diving off the, uh, off the diving board. And that mixture there that Julianne Moore pulls off of both, I want to mother him, I want to fuck him, I want to own him, love him. It was one of those going back, going back to female gaze, that shot where she looks out the window of the house and sees him in slow motion diving off the diving board. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff's in there. Because again, you know she's maternal. But the fact that she's looking at like a handsome yeah. young boy cannot escape your attention. Really complex. And Julianne Moore does fantastic work there. And she's immaculate throughout the picture. I wanted you to come in and give me a minute so I could tell you how much I love you. I mean, it's going to be a new year and we're going to start things and, and do things. And, and I just wanted you to know how much I care about you. I really care about you, honey. You're my little baby. Thank you, Amber. You're the best thing in the world that's happened to me since my son went off. And I just... I love you, honey. I love you, too. Fucking 1980, you know? Can you believe it? I can't. I mean, it's like, next thing you know, it's going to be like 1990, 2000. Can you imagine? Mm. Goodbye, Golden Globes has a best ensemble category. Is it the Globes that has that, or maybe it's Screen Actors Guild? Screen Actors Guild, yeah. That's but all that you can do for Boogie Nights. Nominated, they're, they're all like Heather Graham, career best. I'm not saying she's never been as good. Yeah, she's never been better. I miss my two sons. You know, I miss my, my little Andrew and and my Dirk. You know, I always felt like Dirk was my my baby, my new baby. Don't you miss Dirk? Yeah. He's so fucking talented, the bastard. You know, I just... I love him, Rock Rolling. I mean, I really love Stupid Dream. <laughs> I love you, Mom. 
I want you to be my mom, Amber. Are you my mom? I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you if you're my mom, okay? And, and you say yes, okay? Are you my mom? Yes, buddy. <laughs> yes. yes. When as Roller Girl, she rolls up to that fella prone on the floor and boots the fuck out of his face. Oof, yeah. And it's horrible, but you feel it as well. That what she says, she says, don't ever disrespect me again. Yeah. You really feel it by that point. You love these characters. That's, a, that's the thing with PT. They're a bunch of fuck-ups. <laughs> yeah. And Eddie's not smart, and they make bad life choices. Apart from Reed. Reed seems YPMP, pretty happy. I don't understand this <laughs> terminology. This but industry jargon. He loves every single one of those characters, and even Definitely. Todd Parker. Uh, even Todd, who goes out and you could call it a blaze of glory. Because he's probably the closest to just some low-level scum. Yeah, there's no real baddies. You sympathise with all of them, and you understand, and we can talk about this a bit more later, but the film opens Except and closes... Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. one, yeah. Even, but even that is delicately and sympathetically handled. Yeah. And it's, it's seen as a... That, that's one of the most powerful scenes as well. And uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, had, he'd known Robert Ridgely through his own father, comic character actor, through the 70s and 80s, few pictures with Mel Brooks. In the 60s, voiceover man, primarily, did that throughout his career. And it's through that environment that he met Ernie Anderson. Ernie Anderson served in the Second World War, just like uh, Joaquin Phoenix in The Master. So that's the home life of Paul Thomas Anderson as a five-year-old, as a ten-year-old. Bob Ridgely coming over every few nights, singing baldy songs and drinking until dawn. They're a good bunch of people. And it's uh, with uh, he saw in Ridgely uh, an untapped dramatic potential. Demi did the same. Demi put him in Philadelphia. A couple of other pictures, but he had a dramatic role in Philadelphia. And that's what Paul Thomas Anderson did at that time with Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia... He wrote for the actors he loved and the actors he knew, and he wrote to best showcase people that were important to him. Oddballs. Because for someone who makes dark films, most of them have humour to them. I mean, Boogie Nights yeah. is very funny. But even stuff like There Will Be Blood has, like, there's a sort of humour to the mania of Billy Lewis at the end of that film. Yeah, I didn't that get is, it when I first saw it, but funny. it is, it's really funny. It's... But he didn't even say that he thought The Master was a comedy. <laughs> no one interpreted it that way. I haven't seen it. I've only seen The Master... Once at the cinema, Danny Williams and I went and we walked away and said, that's some fantastic face acting from Joaquin Phoenix. It is really it good. Is, yeah. And the, um, what's it shot on? Is it 60? I think it's more 65. Yeah, 65. Yeah. It's huge and it looks yeah. tremendous. But I, I'm not so familiar with that one. But um, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson was raised around oddballs, people that had experienced hippie culture, but more than that, had grown up themselves at that in beat culture at the end of the 50s so smoking dope and reading poetry and just strange types but benign with it I suppose yeah, that's a really good way because the characters well I guess they are fairly benign again the sort of them beating up that guy in the street uh, maybe muddies the water slightly um, but yeah there is a sort of benign which again it's like it's like the Don Cheadle thing when he's going in not being fair he hasn't done anything to harm anyone Yeah, and he's trying to make a noble effort to transfer from you know what he was doing, which is an actor in porn films, to just start on a business on the street, and that's being denied to him because of something he's done that hasn't really harmed anyone. Sort of puritanical conservatism is, yeah. has decided it was, it was a bad thing to have done. His first major scene, when he's at the hi-fi store, and he plays the country and western music, and he's a black cowboy, which Anderson has said he just finds inherently funny. He, uh, he essentially loses the sale by playing the country and western music at full blast. And his manager says... Move what kind of... it, helps me. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his manager says, what kind of brother are you anyway? And that's a, I think that's a key point for the film. Don Cheadle's character's thread is 
He's what he's the. I think he might be the saddest character in the whole thing because he's quite he's, meek. Because that guy, what the guy's doing is quite racist. He wants to kind of exploit his his uh, yeah his racial appeal, just which is why he's hired for this job. And actually, he doesn't challenge it. He just looks quite sad. Yeah, it's him sort of his country western music. It's the it's, there's a similar non-racial thing happening in the scene where he witnesses the hold up, uh, which is he's not brave. He's terrified. He's like yeah. cowering in the corner. There's a there's a meekness to that character which makes him really empathetic, uh, which then t- again ties into the whole thing about him like being denied, uh, being a decent guy who wants to start this business, but it's being denied to him. Yeah, yeah. And his his quest throughout the film, his uh, modest aspiration is to find himself. He just wants identity, and you see him in various garbs throughout the picture and uh, the Aztec look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when they're dancing, yeah, and um. And the Rick James uh, uh, Afrofuturism of the 79 into 80 New Year's party. And, and then at the end, we see him as a, a b-boy dancer. And all he wants is to figure out who he is. And that's interesting in another way, because most of them use pseudonyms. But he doesn't. At the bank, he really is called Buck Swope. Yeah. And everybody else has a pseudonym. So Eddie Adams really becomes Dirt Diggler. There's no way that Reed Rothschild is his real name. <laughs> and Amber's that. Maggie. But he is Buck Swope. And so that's a, another facet of it, is that he can't... He's used his real name in his pawn. The one true thing about his identity is kind of, has been compromised. Yeah. He can no longer be Buck Swope, even though all he wants to be is figure out who he is. That's what makes his thread so heartbreaking, is he's so lost. I'm pretty happy with it, you know. It's a great look for you, I think. It's pretty original, you know, like that. What, what were we talking about before? Um, oil painting? No. No, yeah, no, yes. I mean, um, but oh, I was saying oh, that... Oh, I, sunsets. Right, yeah. I was saying that I love sunsets. But sunrises are better. Exactly. I, I thought <laughs> I was the only one who felt that way. No, I feel that way. Really? Yes, really. Hey, have you ever heard my stereo system? No. I'm gonna open my own business. Really? Yes. Yes, it's my dream, okay? It's it's hi-fi stereo equipment at discount prices. Yeah, it's called Buck Super Stereo World. That is a fucking great idea. Yeah, you know, in the 80s, that's, that's when it's gonna happen, for real. Really? Yes, really, like, in the 80s. Wow. <laughs> Here's a good question. Um, and it's sort of tangentially weird to Boogie Nights. Do you think modern... Uh, teenagers have sexual awakenings in cinema and the reason I ask that is because uh, not to, to tr- treat Boogie Nights as like some kind of sleazy thing but when you obviously as young man I, I, we watched uh, Boogie Nights and there was a cinematic awakening because of like the style of it and you know as we were discussing before noticing lineage from like Scorsese and Altman into that but also if you're 13 and you're watching a film with fun frontal nudity as we did in the 90s that leaves a mark on you you know, films like Trainspotting and, and uh, I don't know, this kind of just leave like a, a mark on your sort of sexual psyche. I wonder, do kids still have that? And the only reason I ask is because if you did want to see that and you were 13 and it was 1998, 
you would, if you want to see a fully naked woman, you would have to watch some art house film mm. on Channel 4. You'd have to watch some European film or look for in the Radio Times where it says contains strong sexual scenes. My elder brothers, who are they're all like 12 to 16 years older than me, they used to talk about, was it Purple Triangle films? Yeah, yeah, the Red Triangle film. Yeah, in on the Channel 80s, 4, yeah. Which is a Purple Triangle in the Radio Times uh, meant there would be graphic sexual content in. And um, then there was a th- that uh, Channel 4 held a season of adult-oriented cinema during the 80s where that triangle was in like a bug on the screen yeah. to denote this is this will, this will be challenging and it wasn't always it wasn't necessarily porno at all but it was well, no, European just, art house yeah. pictures which essentially had tits and bush yeah <laughs> and the occasional cock I suppose but, but do kids have this then does it happen or by the time you get to 13 <laughs> have you already seen much more hardcore stuff online and therefore yeah. if you you know it, it, seeing Heather Graham fully naked or Kelly MacDonald fully naked isn't that going to have any kind of imprint and McGregor's it? cock which yeah. we saw lots of in the 90s he, he was did. never shy in getting that he one did, I mean he didn't have to get out in the Phantom Menace I don't know <laughs> um, yeah but you said it's an interesting question there's no answer it to it without doing some poll of like yeah uh, we'll go away for an hour and come back watching I don't know no, that uh, right. So the first thing I think about. With I guess that, if you, I guess if you were thirteen now and you didn't have the internet, it would be the modern equivalent would be like um, uh, what's that French film uh, where the two lesbians. Blue like, is the warmest colour. Yeah, yeah. That, I guess that would be the kind of film now. But except, would it? Or would it? Would any teenager who happened to be watching that be like, well, I've, I've seen more graphic version of this on Red Tube or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> so I, growing up and to this day, right, I've never watched porn. I've never really watched porn. In fact, some of the only porn I've ever watched is Paul Thomas Anderson mentioned that On the Lookout, which is what they do in the limo, is based on On the Prowl. It's it's Ah. real. A a bloke, I can't remember the name of the fella, Jack, John Gillis, maybe? Jamie Gillis, I think, is a porn producer who by the mid-80s and the end of the 80s was doing exactly what Jack Horner does in Boogie Nights. And it's called On the Prowl. And I had to go, I think it was Red Shoe that I had to go on to. (laughs) I watched it earlier this year and then I texted Wynn and said, yeah, it's pretty dark stuff actually, but do give it a look. Because it's aesthetic, it's interesting, and it's shot on video camera. So it looks like... uh, What you see in... Well, yeah, wedding video or kids playing football. But it's uh, Jamie Gillis out on the streets of San Francisco finding a couple of dudes and saying, have you seen my pictures? Far out, yeah, would you like to meet a couple of ladies? And I watched about 10 minutes. I didn't actually get to the sex, and I thought, fuck, yeah, this is properly <laughs> grotty, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, I've never, having never watched porno, my understanding comes through cinema. Which in most cases will probably be either quite tasteful. <laughs> yeah. Like, say, Kate Winslet in Titanic with the sort of beautiful golden cinematography. Yeah. Or will be fairly naturalistic, so maybe like train spotting, and therefore isn't setting you up for some disappointment. <laughs> when... And it's, it's about the context and about the framing. That's an interesting question. It's something I'll have to consider more. Yeah. But I, don't, I can't even remember when was the first time I saw tits on screen. It won't have been Titanic. I have a very early memory. Oh, of, well, trading places. Well, I have a very Animal early memory House. of. Oh yeah, I have a very early memory of watching Witness with my family, and it was great. It was a great moment because it's like we're all my family watching this great bit of cinema, and then the second there's like about a five second shot of Ke- Kelly McGillis with her breasts out. Oh, is there? And my mum went. She changing or something? Yeah. Oh, it, it was not. We I mean, she is, but Buck sees her. And there's an, an exchange, like a long glass exchange. She doesn't cover herself up. Yeah. Uh, and this is how annoyingly Catholic my family was. My mum went off to bed. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to finish watching Witness. I was fucking annoyed. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
for me, I think, uh, as an adolescent, growing up, I mainly watched Hollywood pictures, unsurprisingly. And Hollywood pictures have... Uh, they uh, There's a lack of sophistication and maturity around sexual themes other than in specific films in which are, uh, are making a conscious attempt to deal with that. Uh, and those films are easy to... They're easy to avoid and easy to set apart. Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, nine and a half weeks. And so they, they weren't around the house and I didn't watch them. But I guess that's the thing about witnesses. It's like, <laughs> it comes up by surprise because you think you're just watching a detective drama about an Amish yeah. community and then that pops up. But And you say that she doesn't turn away, so she's immodest. Uh, I mean... So that's a good character beat. Yeah, I'm fairly sure. I mean, it's not... A, this film I've seen a few times, not in a while, so I can't quite remember. But I'm pretty sure the point of the film is that she doesn't mind that he's seen, I think. But don't yeah. go into that. I see, yeah, I'm not quite explaining well what I mean, but it was easy to avoid films which dealt with sexuality. There was nudity in films. I guess, because in, films, you, in but... America, you like, don't watch Fatal Attraction or, or Basic Instinct yeah. with your parents. Like, I, yeah, I like those Whereas pictures. I watched Desperado with my dad, and that's got a very 80s, I know it's made in the 90s, but it's yeah. got a very awkward... Slightly pointless, long sex scene in the middle. Yeah, uh, and uh, that was excruciating because I was about thirteen. That's exactly the sort. Well, at least, of, yeah. he, at least he didn't send me to bed like my mum did. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. There are certain films that you would naturally watch with your parents, and then others that I, I didn't see at all. I didn't see Fatal Attraction until I don't know five years ago. I didn't seen see. It. You still haven't. No. And Basic Instinct I only saw for the first time again about five years ago, and it was mainly through. The Prism of Verhoeven, and who shot that one? Jan de Bont. I think so. And eventually a mate said, you have to see it, alone for the cinematography, <laughs> to get an un understanding of nine and a half weeks I've never seen. So it was really, I think maybe we had a similar upbringing there, although, my, as I say, I, I didn't have the staunch Catholicism in my household. Amber, I live in this world. I don't like violence any more than you do. Violence is a bad thing. But when you see violence in films, it's, you know, if movies, films caused violence, we'd be able to wipe out violence tomorrow. Boom, no more films. That's fine with me. I'll find something else to do. I'll fuck on my own time. You know, I got other interests. I'm a magician. Um, and, you know, hopefully I like, you know, that that'll be something that I focus on in the future because you can't fuck forever. I realize that. Anyway, violence is something that plagues us as a society. You can kind of group... Uh... Sydney Boogie Nights and Magnolia together. Yeah. Particularly Magnolia and Boogie Nights in their sort of sprawling LA set ensemble, uh, Altman slash Scorsese influenced uh, aesthetic. Um, yeah, he and had you can, that, and, you can yeah. also And you can also do it with There Will Be Blood, uh, Master, and The Phantom Thread. And then there's sort of this island of, um, what's the one with Sandler? This punch drunk club island yeah. that separates them. And I mean, I was blown away when I saw that movie not just because of a film on its own merits that's astounding but like I just couldn't believe he'd just taken all this time off and then come with that which is just so distinct from anything he'd done before uh, yeah you're right going back to the time of its release as I mentioned Prairie Home Companion came in the middle of it but that was about it and I having seen the sprawling LA epics with which he ended the millennium this Curio with Adam Sandler which I loved but which I was very distinct and that, for me, it had the hallmarks of a director unsure of his place and potentially going off the rails and then to come back with a, an American epic on yeah. that scale, the fucking John Huston film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
and that and you're right that it was there that he began his new collaborations that's the first time Johnny Greenwood came into the picture before then it'd been Michael Penn and John Bryan he had that coterie yeah up until even up until Punch Drunk Love because Louis Guzman's in that Marilyn Ricecub is in that she was in Magnolia had he not have made that shift or had he not even just made any more films he'd still always be remembered as a fantastic filmmaker because of Boogie Nights and Magnolia but there's something about that shift that he pulled it off that he's almost found a new voice arguably one that's more of his own I, I would say the later films seem more detached from their influences I mean maybe it's just I don't know what those influences are yeah because we, 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 we talked about we, we watched Boogie Nights and we immediately were like Scorsese yeah we, and that's we, partly just, because that's what we were told yeah but, exactly but yeah when a, when a filmmaker leaves behind their original influences and you can no longer spot the influence you can yeah. no longer say in as much as like PT himself has said, he likes the tonal changes of Jonathan Demi pictures, specifically Something Wild. It might actually just be a cinematic blind spot. Because I remember when Commode reviewed Phantom Thread, he he said, oh, "I mean, it's obvious what all the influences." <laughs> and I think it was a more old, more old Hollywood that was influencing Phantom yeah. Thread. But I uh, haven't seen that many films that were released before 1970. If I'm totally honest, I mean, I've yeah. only seen more than a lot of people, but. Um, there's a lot of classic golden age of Hollywood that I haven't engaged with, which maybe would have set me up more for Phantom Thread. Um, but it's hard to... And I say this, I'm not a massive fan of uh, Punch Drug Love or um, Inherent Vice. Yeah. But I still think he's just easily one of the best filmmakers going. Easily. Yeah. And even those, I can kind of see what he was doing and I kind of appreciate that he was trying to do something distinct and original in both films. It's just there's something about the narrative and the tone that doesn't quite sit sit with me, but he is he is astonishing. What I yeah, what I find continually exciting is if you take a, a fantastic director, David Lynch. David Lynch has remained David Lynch for his entire career. Yeah. He's become more David Lynch yeah. over time. I don't for think better or worse. Yeah, I don't think he's necessarily compromised, but he's distilled himself and uh, Eraser Head and Inland Empire are equally David Lynch. But Paul Thomas Anderson has changed, com- not completely, but has. His maturation, is that a word? The, the, Let's go with it. Uh, yeah, as he has matured, and I'm going to get you back on in the new year to talk about this further, the exhilaration of the progress Paul Thomas Anderson has achieved as a filmmaker, as an artist, and if you compare that, and these are names we quite like, but compared to Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, nine times that same film, he's left them all behind. So exciting to see. So Boogie Nights is a five-star picture. Magnolia probably is as well. It's not really plausible. It's not possible to be better than Boogie Nights, and yet there you can will make be blood... a case for there being better than. Boogie yeah, Nights. there will be blood. Is but, but is is better... it, it is a little bit apples and oranges. It is, or, but or to quote Stuart Lee, you know, uh, chalk and despair. It's <laughs> like they're so far removed stylistically, like it's hard to compare. Like Boogie Nights couldn't be any better. There will be, couldn't be any better. Yeah, and then because the, you can you can actually make a more direct comparison between Magnolia and Boogie Nights by virtue of the same style. I would say Boogie Nights is probably slightly better. Yeah. Um, because I think thematically, uh, there's sort of elements of repetition that I don't quite. That you could have done a bit more editing Magnolia. There's yeah. too many people cheating on their wives in it. And yeah. I think you could have been a bit more original with that. Yeah. Uh, so and his two fathers dying as well, which yeah, is exactly. the same plot line. So yeah. you, you can kind of. You can make a more direct comparison, whereas it's very difficult to do with Boogie Nights and Phantom Thread, <laughs> for example. I think there's the other thing. I said to this to you when Phantom Thread came out. I just assumed when I watched Phantom Thread, they had to have adapted that from a novel. Yeah. There's no way this California guy who watches Adam Sandler films all the time, yeah, you know, and I'm probably being a bit snobbish with that, could have made something so weirdly inherently English. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's got Englishness in its blood that film, but he did. I mean, I know 
he did develop the character with Day Lewis, so it, it, it's, a, it's a co-British uh, voice, I guess. But it's, it's mental that that's not adapted from a yeah yeah. The step change, I suppose. What I'm what I'm trying to say about Paul Thomas Anderson is the difference between making pictures like Boogie Nights and Magnolia, and then going on to do There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread. It's a it feels like a different discipline. Yes. As though someone went from being an architect to being a carpenter, maybe. If <laughs> yeah. you could put it like that. Those are those are connected things, but you they're not that's not trans uh, those skills aren't necessarily translatable. Yeah. And yet he's done it, so he's What the filmmakers would you say what the filmmakers would you say have pulled that off? I don't know, because Spielberg the, is someone that pops immediately to mind just because Schindler's list is so it's 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 not just removed from Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's very removed from Vampire of the Sun, which is also a World War Two film. That yeah. was made six years before. Um, I'm sure that Scorsese has done it, but I haven't seen Kunda and I haven't seen... Well, I would Christ. say with Scorsese, I, I think, because he has made a film every two or three years his whole career, you can kind of see it evolve. The, the interesting thing about that with Blood is it's a sharp left turn. Yeah. In the same way I would kind of... Even though I, I've also said this uh, to you before, you can kind of watch... You can kind of understand... To a certain extent, E.T., Empire of the Sun, and Schindler's is a sort of weird trilogy. In, in as far as E.T. is like a sort of escapism thing, like it's divorced through the eyes of a child. And then he, he, five years later, he makes World War Two through the eyes of a child. And it is a slightly more heightened version of what World War Two is than what you then get in Schindler's List, which is almost entirely grounded and uncompromising in, in its depiction of it. Um uh, but, but putting that aside, I still think stylistically it's very removed from everything else. Whereas Kundun has a lot of the classic sort of, uh, I don't know, Scorsese Shoemaker editing things right. going on with it. Right. Which then so does uh, The Departed, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you can kind of trace it. And that's not as a detriment to him at all. I hold Scorsese up in with Anderson and Spielberg as one of the greatest. What about, ever. what about Age of Innocence then? So that's coming directly after Goodfellas. Not seen it. But, but again, no. it does have some of the... From the bits I've seen, it does have some of the editing texts you associate with him. It's almost yeah. like a sort of... It's almost like his signature on the painting. Do you yeah. see what I mean? And I think that gets forgotten in his canon. And even in Daniel Day-Lewis's canon, there's yeah. a lot of emphasis is placed on my left foot and even in The Name of the Father before we get to Age of Innocence. And even Gangs of New York, when it came out, made more of a splash. Mm. I think because it, it's felt... It's actually not... It's far from one of Scorsese's best films. It's deeply flawed. But there was something interesting about it at the time, which was one, uh, it had been five years since Day-Lewis had made a film. So there's a big thing about that. And he's amazing in that film. And the second thing was, it was weird seeing a $100 million film from Scorsese and suddenly getting to see what that looked like. I mean, yes, he dabbled commercially. Like Cape Fear is a very unapologetic, big mainstream thriller, do you know what I mean? Mm. But it didn't cost $100 million. So it felt like it got a lot of attention. yeah, and that that attention uh, distracted from the reality of it, which is that it's a fine film, but not a great film. Yeah. But all of us going into it, knowing how much it cost, and who this guy was, and who he was working with, and the themes, the, the, the rather grandiose epic style, we all wanted it to be great. Truthfully, it was only with the release of The Departed that I realised, actually, Gangs is okay, and The Aviator is okay. I wanted to like them more than I could because... I would say The Aviator is great and I actually would also say it's a great example of why being a director for hire can be a good thing because Gangs of New York was his pet project for 25 years and by the time you actually see it it's like it is muddled. Yeah. It's dramatically ineffective whereas I felt like 
there was a, there was a shot on the arm factor with the aviator. I think personally, you watch that. It's clearly he was excited by the material, yeah. and you do get bravura filmmaking in that, like the plane crash, which is just fucking horrific when yeah. he crashes into the suburban neighbourhood, um, and there is something exciting about it. And then talking about versatility, we d- we're now discussing four films and. <laughs> I was going to use Riley to get yeah, back to it, it's funny Yeah, <laughs> it's funny to think about how... And these are the things, I, as a film fan, as a film enthusiast, I wondered to myself... Scorsese's made two pictures with Daniel Day-Lewis, The Age of Innocence and Gangs of New York. He's made two pictures with John Riley, Gangs of New York and The Aviator. Through these friendships, whether Paul Thomas Anderson went on set with Daniel Day-Lewis, says, you know John Riley, you know what a funny motherfucker that guy is. Do they interact at that level? Does Daniel Day-Lewis on set in Italy on Gangs of New York, spend time with John Riley, and I want to know about the interactions there, whether they do chat to one another. The primary way in which I can connect with Paul Thomas Anderson is, he's just like me. <laughs> I, I think that we'd get on. He likes the things I like. He sees You're virtue. big on Sandler as well, aren't you? <laughs> you what? You're big on Sandler, I've noticed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I am, yeah. I've got plenty of time for Sandler. Again, I think when he's done dramatic roles... They've been fine. They've been. If he were given more rope, like Hanks was, for instance, because Hanks didn't go from bachelor party to Philadelphia in one move. It took about eight years, and Punchline was in between, and so was Big. Sandler, what were the dramatic ones he's done? Spanglish was adequately received. Um, Don Cheadle, him in him and Sandman in Rain Over Me, that's fine as well. But there's a different attitude with those. But. Paul Thomas Anderson knew exactly how to deploy him, and it was a, it was as simple as saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna write an Adam Sandler film, and it's gonna have that Adam Sandler character, but in real life. What yeah. if he really existed? Yeah, it'd be strange, it'd be terrifying. Yeah, um, <laughs> he'd be a weird fellow to know, and it wouldn't be fun to be around someone who's so volatile and prone it's to a good example of a direct, It's a good example of a director using an actor well. Mm. And getting exactly, and I suppose the fact that he is a Sandler fan means he gets the appeal of Sandler, which is why he can then sub- totally subvert it. Yeah. But, but in a way that he knows Sandler will be able to handle. And I don't like I say I don't like it, but I can see what he's trying to do. Um, and in the way he does handle Sandler, that is uh, is impressive. So what what can he do now? Because we've discussed how when Paul Thomas Anderson writes for John C. Riley, William H. Macy. Philip Seymour Hoffman, he knows exactly how to write for them. Joaquin Phoenix as well. So every time he writes for someone, he gets the best of what they're able to do. Same with Punch Drunk Love, that's as good as Sandler's ever been. Who could he identify now and write a role for? I'm excited to see who, which younger actor, somebody under 40, say, who he would select and say, I can write to this person's strength. It's not going to be... Emma Stone, it's not going to be... Do you be... mean like an Arnie Hammer or someone? Well, maybe. Maybe someone we haven't even or thought someone about. Someone you... Th- yeah, I say Hammer because he's one of those people who I feel is good, but he actually very rarely gets given roles at, uh, where he's allowed to shine the way he probably can. And because he's six foot, white and good looking, Hollywood has tried to make him a more conventional leading man, which is why he gets cast in, say, uh, The Lone Ranger. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, you wonder if there's something slightly more interesting going on. Do you know... He, <laughs> this is really interesting. Do you know what Hammer's next role is? Do you know what Wheatley's next film is? Yeah, oh, hold on. It's called Freak Shift, right? Is that the uh, one? No, after that, Wheatley's remaking Rebecca, starring oh, Arnie Hammer. That's right, How yeah. mental is that? yeah. Off the back of them working together in so free Hammer, fire. if he can pull it off, is going to be following in the footsteps of Lawrence uh, Olivia. Yeah. Um, but sorry, I've gone slightly off point. But I know, I know what you mean. It's like, who is he going to home in on? Because if, if, if there is a hundred things that Paul Thomas Anderson does well, but one of them 
is identifying the strengths of an actor he he Dana. loves. We all fucking love Dano, and I guess I know he didn't look on Sunshine, and he was excellent in it. But I guess it's the one-two punch of that, and then there will be blood that allows you to then be like, huh, this yeah. kid is pretty shit hot. Who could he do? Who would I like to see him use? Launch the career of Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg's become too Catholic. Talking about Catholicism earlier. Well, we yeah. Well, this is the thing. Wahlberg and Reynolds both disavowed Ruby Nights, which is insane. Ruby Nights is the only good film Reynolds did in a 30-year period. And it literally launched Wahlberg's career. I mean, yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I suspect that Wahlberg probably has an vanity that he thinks he would have been a respected star with or without it. Do you know what I mean? Like He probably yeah, had a certain yeah. element of destiny, which allows him to then go... I wish I hadn't done Boogie Nights. It should be then just mental as a film punter thing, because it's like it's literally your best role and arguably your best performance. <laughs> With both of those actors, it highlights and there's a connection. Departed. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, yeah. It highlights exactly what's required uh, of an actor at any stage in their career. You just need to be open to trying stuff out. So yes, Mark Wahlberg was young enough then, and he was willing to go on that journey. Now I, I've read that. Was it DiCaprio that recommended him for it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And initially he said, he took a look at the script and saw that it was a bloke in his underwear and thought, they just want me because of the Calvin Klein commercials I've done, because I'm um, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And eventually, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson said, no, it's not really about having you in your pants, man. This is about something else. And he's young and he thinks, fuck it, I want to work with interesting people. This is the mad thing with Mark Wahlberg. Before he became Peter Berg's go-to to play America. To play a hero. <laughs> yeah. He did the, the pictures with David O. Russell. Three Kings, I Heart Huckabees, uh, and Onto the Fighter. He did the pictures with James Gray. He worked for um, Tim Burton, not quite the same thing. But, yeah, uh, uh, The Yards and We Own the Night are both superb. And that's the crossover there, Joaquin and Mark Wahlberg. They're both great in it. And then one has become an actor. One, yeah. one is still, is now, I think, possibly the best male actor working today. And Mark Wahlberg, with the right director and the right will and the guts... He can do that. He's great. It's all about the will. I mean, it's funny. I I always perhaps naively assume surely all directors, surely all actors want that. Even surely the most vacuous actors, like oh, I just had the right thing. If I can just get into, do you know what I mean? But they don't. They don't. They they they're not willing to give of themselves. I think. I'll give, so, I'll give you an example of someone who I don't think has this, but you kind of wish did. I, I think The Rock, because I often think The Rock is a great film star. Um, he's full of charisma. He can do comedy well, and occasionally he'll make a really fun film like Jumanji or something. Yeah. Um, and I, but I always think, with him, I want to see a Paul Thomas Anderson in The Rock. I want to see The Rock starring in, yeah. I don't know. But I, I remember reading an interview, I don't know if it was like San Andreas or um, Skyscraper or something, where apparently one of those fi- films had like a, a dark ending. And Rock was like, no, people go to cinema to have fun. So yeah. I want to change the thing. And I found it really interesting because it shows you that one, The Rock has a philosophy on cinema. And yeah. two, actually maybe you won't get to see him in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Because it actually... The Rock, and I think this is probably a good thing, broadly speaking, has, is clearly decided. People can see him have fun, so I'm going to make Skyscraper, I'm going to make Jumanji, I'm going to make San Andreas. Yeah. And maybe he doesn't have that burning desire to, to, be in a, to be in a thing. And I guess maybe that's no bad thing. It's just, you know, we're cinephiles who are like, oh, I'd fucking love to watch yeah, and The, the Rock in a Paul Thomas Anderson That's film. what makes it exciting when PT does pluck somebody out like that. And the, the Rock has the same thing as Burt Reynolds and as Arnie. They're too protective of their identity and what makes them commercial. Yes. The first time I saw Arnie speak German in a film was Escape Plan, and it was revelatory to me. He actually sounded great, and I started to go back and watch his films a bit more closely, and I realised he's not actually a donkey, he's not a hack, he's not a bad actor, but he worked within himself, and this is the thing with Burt Reynolds. It's so sad to see. At that point in his career, so he took a chance after knocking P.T. back seven or eight times on the script, said, all right, I'll do this. 
didn't understand it, didn't understand the screenplay, the shooting, and one of the problems PT has said is that Burt was by maybe 15 years oldest on set. So Philip Baker Hall has a couple of scenes and Robert Ridgely's knocking about, but of that core dozen, William H. Macy is like 10 years older than the rest, at least. And then there's Burt Reynolds, who's got another 10 or 15 years on William H. Macy. And he he just didn't connect with any of those people. So in, in the best way... Because I mean, presumably a lot of those people, I'm just guessing, I'm guessing a lot of those people are theatre actors, right? Or they're assuming they have theatre backgrounds, and then they're working with an old Hollywood star. Someone who was the shit. Yeah. From 1975 to 1985. And, and he doesn't... He, he knows what's... Burt Reynolds... <laughs> it, it, on, that, on that shoot, Burt Reynolds knows what... Burt Reynolds can do successfully, and that's Hooper, Smoking the Bandit, Longest Yard, Mean Machine. Cop and a half. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's got a persona, and he's protective of that, and I suppose he's constantly thinking, why do you want me here if I'm not being me? If I'm yeah. not Burt Reynolds, number one, who am I? Number two, what am I doing here? And in terms of the um, the theatrical backgrounds, it's we talked about this a long time ago, but three of the core cast have worked extensively with Mamet, it's Ricky Jay, William H. Macy, and Jack Wallace, who plays the camera operator with the moustache. I don't oh. even know if he has any lines, but he's <laughs> talked about... Kurt Longjohn mentions him quite a lot. And, yeah, with, with those, with that as the core cast and all the youngsters around him, I think Bert felt out of his element, but he's really good in the film. But doesn't have... I don't know if it's the confidence or just really the... Um, I can understand actors who, to an extent, just can't be bothered with... Reach it, you know. When Daniel Day Lewis takes a role, it takes him eighteen months to reach that point where he can assay that role. Yeah, and I do respect an actor who who says, "I'm not doing that. This is this is a gig for me." Yeah, you know, I, I turn up to set. I know my lines. I hit my marks. Well, it's like the Harrison Ford thing. I come from the acting school of let's pretend. Yeah, yeah. Also, there is a bit. I mean, this gets. I think we're kind of getting to something very core about creativity here, which is. Um, I don't know how to, I need to try and say this without sounding really wanky, which is like... Wank away, go ahead. <laughs> Art is a craft. So you have Daniel Lewis crafting a character of 18 months and then not coming out of character. And obviously that's fantastic. But actually a lot of the best stuff is just like natural, do you know what I mean? Someone yeah. who has a natural voice, who doesn't have to think about it. Harrison Ford is great because he just shows up from potency as a thing. But he has the gravitas and the charisma for everyone to just fall in love with it, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you do... You need both, really. You know, if you don't have one, you don't have Star Wars and Major Lost Stark. If you don't have either, you don't have There We Blood and Lincoln. Yeah. And they're all equally valid, great films. I think it's all right for actors... Well, th- here's the key thing. It's fine for actors to be superficial. The Rock will continue doing what The Rock does well. But then you and I and so many other people are left thinking, but what if he just... What if he took a chance? Take yeah. that chance. And, and Bert did. And he... Again, reluctantly, he, he had no <laughs> he had no idea what he had on his hands. And he scored his only Oscar nomination, yeah, and it was a big hit. And, and, was like, and, Yay, but we're and again with Mark Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg now having got well into Catholicism again for the first time in years, uh, now feels that. Um, now I, I read into this and I checked, and he's thinking about it as a father. He's you know, on the the um, junket trail with Daddy, not Daddy Daycare. Uh, with Daddy's Home 2, and he's talking about how he would explain the role of Boogie Nights to his kids, and that's why he's embarrassed about it, because it's set in the porn industry. Marky Mark doesn't realise he's an actor, and a craftsman, as <laughs> you're saying. That's an interesting point, yeah. This is weird. It's bizarre how he feels he has to explain his artistic choices, but he's not thinking of himself as an artist. Yeah. He's just a tool of a director. Strange. That is odd. And, and there we are, left with so many missed opportunities, and uh, I, I can't wait to see 
who Paul Thomas Anderson next selects as somebody with untapped potential. Do you know which actually I'm looking forward to seeing have a big change, and he's going to have to make a big change in the next five years. Cruz. I was thinking similarly, Because yeah. Cruz, and it, there is a connection to PTA here, and it, it, it's the Magnolia thing, but he has said on multiple occasions, don't bet against Cruz. Because mm. um, he works hard, uh, throws himself into stuff. Yes, it's not he's not throwing himself into a role for 18 months like thing, but he is learning how to ride helicopters and do stunts, which might sound superficial, but it has led to some of the most memorable action set pieces we've seen in the last few years. Um, you, I think of Cruz and I think of Newman, Paul Newman, and it's not because I think he's as good as Paul Newman, but ultimately Paul Newman was a kind of pin-up, uh, good-looking leading man in the same way as Cruz was. Um, but yet, it, we, but it took him getting old, getting grey hair, getting the moustache, getting gravitas mm. to get to the colour of money where, you know, it's a different type of actor who's winning Oscars. Tommy Jones is the same. He's more interesting as an old man with loads of crinkles and, and cuts on his face. Dean is a, is a, is a young, good-looking buck. Um, mm. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Cruz as he gets older, as he can't jump off the burst cliff for anymore, as he gets <laughs> yeah. grey. How is he going to reinvent himself? Yeah, I suspect he will. I fully suspect he's going to win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for something when he's sixty-seven. <laughs> yeah, but it'll be interesting to see how that comes together. PT is the man that could do that. Yeah, yeah. I think about that often. So you're right. Um, when somebody up there likes me came out, Paul Newman was a bimbo, and he was a bimbo for many years. Yeah, and then as you say, into the eighties with the verdict in eighty-two by Mamet and Colour of Money, and then on from there and around the time of Road to Perdition, he's regarded as... like One of the greatest actors. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And from very humble, very humble beginnings. And I think in the context of John Cusack as well, I, I'm waiting for him to get those old man roles. He's still... He never transitioned out of playing young men, so John Cusack's about 52, maybe. And 20 well, years ago, he it, could... He might, have, he might have to become a bit more schlubby. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. He's, he's, for my liking, he smokes too much. I don't think he takes care of himself as an actor should. He's more healthy than us, potentially. But in terms of Hollywood actors, well, no. OK, but well, there's a very famous actor for whom smoking did allow a big change. Pacino. Well, what's, his voice is, doesn't sound the same in The Godfather. It was in Sea of Love and anything after. He just sort of took six years off, smoked a billion cigarettes, and then he comes back as Pacino. Because I can't believe that... Because when you think about The Godfather, his voice is quite high. It's like a look of Brad Yeah, it's like Dog Day Afternoon especially as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very um, high register, yeah, shrill. There's something about once he comes back, it's just like, it's a different actor. It's like, she's got a grapey ass! <laughs> and, stuff. and it's a total... So, so guess what I'm saying is, Cruz needs to smoke lots of cigarettes. Yeah. And, and then he'll become an interesting actor. You're, you're, there's a couple of things I think about Cruz. I think that Cruz is the one that will bring back Spacey and or Singer. Do you reckon? In about five years, yeah. Singer, I think yeah, Cruz actually. has the potential to do it. Those men were not... Con- they have, at this point, not been convicted of anything. Hollywood stars have come back from very, worse. Uh, do you know about Spacey? I mean, a 14-year-old boy. I'm not sure if he can come back from that. Singer, what was Singer's thing again? I can't remember. Similar stuff. He has a lot of parties with a lot of lads and doesn't necessarily ask their age. Those stories have been around for years. I remember reading about that years ago. Well, yeah, he got sued around the time of that pupil for yeah. shooting a sh- well for shooting yes. a shower scene, which may or may not have even made it into the final cut. And I don't mean to be cavalier with these things. There is, I think, what's good, what's good for Hollywood and for our society, and potentially bad for any actors without ability, is that you will no longer be able to coast along on looks and blowjobs. You'll, you know, <laughs> yeah. with that out of the picture, you'll actually have to have some chops. And I think there's going to be a lot of thick men and which, which, under-talented I guess what you're who, saying is like, you're saying, because Spacey has chops, because Singer has chops, 
you reckon they could have a comeback? No, I, no well, I, I've never particularly liked Spacey. I think he's a ham. Even in LA Confidential, I can't get with him. You see it in the... I know you see it in the Marcon impressions. I'll walk yeah. right out there. It's, there's yeah. something very theatrical about it. Brilliant. Sorry, I'd really fuck. I'm saying that show. Although my my wife was going on about the Paul McCartney thing, I was like, fine, I'll watch him with Paul McCartney. And then three minutes later, I was crying, and I was like, this is annoying. I want to hate him, but this has worked emotionally. <laughs> Gone off point. Get from the Paul McCartney, James Corden car share to Boogie Nights and Six Steps. All right. <laughs> okay. Oh well, I can do this. Hold on. Oh, right. I think I can do it as well. So you can go from Corden's in Ocean's Eight. Oh, I was I was going to go even further back. Corden's in Twenty Four Seven by Shane Meadows. So then you get Hoskins. Then you get Hoskins, <laughs> and then from Hoskins, Hoskins is in Nixon as J Edgar Hoover, no. and that opens up possibilities because every fucker's in that. Yeah. So from there, or if you just go by cast, then James Woods is in Nixon. He's also in Digstown with Heather Graham, and he also stooped Heather Graham. Bollock, Clooney, Gravity, Clooney. You're then in Cohen's territory, so you could go to Turturro. But Clooney and Julianne Moore must have been in something together. I it feels like they must have been. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but actually, Mr. Turin anything with Macy? Oh, they, they, were they in different Cohen films? Oh, actually, well, I suppose you could then go Cohen, Macy, and then you're there in six. Yeah. To, to, again, Turturro and Macy, it feels like they must have been in films together, but Turturro yeah. is quite distinct from that mammoth stable. From that Michael Bay stable. <laughs> he is in Transformers. One or two of them. I really do need to go. Yes, yeah, no, you've been. I need to go and watch. You've Star been fantastic. One. Before you go, you must tell us where we can see you in 2019. So January the 24th, downstairs at the King's Head is one of the best comedy clubs in London. I'm doing the new material night there, January the 4th. I'm doing a gig in Norwich on the 13th. 30th. Where's the gig in Norwich? Because we've got many listeners in Norwich. Oh really? Oh, this is good. It's at Treehouse Comedy at the Walnut Tree Shades. If that means anything to anyone in Norwich, I will be there on the 13th of February. And will you need uh, benefactors to put you up? What do you do for accommodation? Uh, Norwich, I think you can get there and back in one night, but I have a couple of friends there anyway, so okay, I'm, right. sure, I'm <laughs> sure I'll be fine. Uh, and actually, if you're in London, Backyard Comedy on March 28th, I'll be playing that. You've tuned to the One Sensational Shot Network. You've been listening to the Electronic Labyrinth with me, Fletcher Walton. Many thanks to special guest Aidan McCaffrey. The Electronic Labyrinth will return in 2019. Luke Littleboy and I will be back much sooner than that. We'll be dropping a new episode of The Evening Glass any week now. And before Christmas, the first part of our review of the year. You can stay in touch with what we're up to on Facebook and through Instagram. And listen to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher and on our own website, onesensationalshot.com. We do hope you'll join us again soon. And one last thing. We dedicate this episode to Bob, Ernie, Phil, Bert, and Ricky J. Let's go get some of that Saturday night beer. No more fucks with Chester Brock. This is the best work we've ever done. It's a real film, Jack. 
feels good. You made it fly. No. This is a film. I want them to remember me by. Thank you.